Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. play together, they believe, um, and Karis Levert is cold. Levert, back in, speed, oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew! Holiday, shot clock down to six, finds one, here's a long three. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. Let us know anything you like, dislike, want to hear more of. We're always uh, always looking to improve. I'm psyched today to be joined for yet another edition of our The One Series. I think this is our, this is our second to last episode now. Um, joined by, of course, colleague and friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I mean, like I said, I can't believe we're just powering through these this quickly. Feels like everything's just blending together, but I'm actually excited for this episode. So. I'm very excited for this one, too. We have uh, we have some good, good players in store today um, with a lot of leeway for where we can go and, and how we talk about everything. Um, who are, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I can, I'm totally blanking today. Um, I know I have Keelan Martin. Who do you have today? I have Jakar and O'Shea, which on the surface, it probably seems like, oh, you know, how much is there to talk about these three guys? But I spent a lot of the weekend looking into some plays and different stuff that they did, especially late season when playing time opened up. And I think we got some good stuff to break down. We do. So which player do you want to start off with today? Well, just as a background for people, in case this is the first episode that you're listening to, we call this the one because we each choose one play, one number, and one over under for the players that we assigned ourselves, and then we're going to react to each other's picks. So first up, I think I'm going to go with Jakar. Um, The play that I picked, I mean, it had had very little choice. The The obvious play was to go to the game against the Lakers where... He scored 20 points, which, I mean, many are calling this the Jakar game, Mark. Many are calling it that. (laughs) So basically what I want to point out here, and and these clips will be embedded in the post in case people want to follow along, is the Pacers are running their stagger connected to a stagger or effectively wheel. And Goga is the second screener. Jakar is the first screener. And Goga, as he is apt to do, um, does not make contact on the second round of the picks with Doug coming around. So when Doug comes around and gets the ball from Justin off of the curl, he's going to get encircled by Anthony Davis, LeBron, and the guy who's his own defender who's trailing him. So it's basically a meeting of three. Now, typically when the Pacers run this play, the first screener, who's Jakar, will exit out clear to the opposite corner. In Jakar's case, Andre Drummond does not follow him. He's going to stand in the paint and protect So what Jakar does is he responds by manufacturing an angle for Doug to be able to make a quick bounce pass to him in the paint. 
And then when he gets the ball, he kind of almost fakes the pass to Goga, which is pretty slick, and then uses a spin move and scores up over the top in the paint. So I think what I want to say about Jakar is, is like he doesn't finish great around the basket. Like his offense isn't really his skill necessarily. He only shot 49% from the field for the season. And sometimes I can, you can like count how many spins he's going to go to <laughs> instead of like passing out of some of those shots. But what he is really good at is in that area as a secondary option along the baseline is he's just really good at what I said, manufacturing angles too create places for his teammates to find dump off passes. So I wanted to highlight that moment for him in that Laker game when he had his best game of the season. Yeah. He, uh, so I personally would have gone with the, uh, the, the ejection against Rudy Gay, but that's just me. That was a... that probably is the moment that <laughs> sticks out most in our minds. If we're being honest. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's kind of indicative of, of his season. That's not at all meant to, to rag on Jakar, but it just felt like, uh, it wasn't really his season with the Pacers. Uh, it never really felt like he was able to find a lot of footing with the rotation or the roster in general. Um, and he had some nice moments down down the stretch towards the end of the season, as you mentioned, but it's just different compared to like in the bubble, he was playing huge minutes and uh, he found real footing on the team last year. And, and you kind of wondered what that would mean this year. And uh, it really didn't end up in a uh, much larger of a role, but honestly a short, smaller role than last year. And that's kind of an interesting compare and contrast too, because in the bubble, if I'm being honest, I wasn't thrilled with Nate McMillan. I mean, I know that Goga was had been dealing with the the knee stuff for a large portion of last year, but like you get into that playoff series and Jakar isn't really like he sets <laughs> he sets decent screens, but he's not like a screen and roll guy that you're gonna run high pick and roll with and and he also doesn't space the floor. Like I realize that Goga hasn't shot the three well, but he looks more comfortable holding space in those situations than what you do with Jakar. And he, you know, Goga wasn't a factor in the, in the playoffs. And Jakar was the guy that Nate McMillan leaned on as backup center. I remember early on in the season when they resigned Jakar, I think both of our opinions were like, this is fine. And Jakar stays ready off the bench as long as he isn't the person that like, if Miles or Sabonis were to have an injury that Jakar would be the backup center instead of Goga and kind of early on that was the case until Goga got back from the injury but then I give Nate Bjorken credit because he did turn to Goga obviously in somewhat of a limited role but I mean I think those needed to be Goga's minutes but what your point is actually plays into my one number which I'll just go ahead and say is 45 and that was the number of minutes that he played at the four this year which just to, as a callback to our last podcast with Jeremy Lamb, Jeremy Lamb played over 300 minutes at the four. And that's more total minutes. Like Jeremy played more minutes at the four this year in total minutes than Keelan or Jakar played. So I'm not like hearkening back to the double plotter lineups with like uh, Kevin Serafin and Al Jefferson. Oh, and what and a Al Jefferson. Yes. Like I, I don't, I didn't, about I, that. I didn't want to reunite that, but there were certain moments this year where I found myself like, okay, there's a shortened rotation. I don't need Jeremy Lamb playing against Zion Williamson right now. Like let's just go ahead and play Jakar at the four and just try to play a little bit bigger in certain scenarios. So while I did want Goga to be ahead of him in the rotation at the five spot, I thought that there were instances where you probably could have leaned on Jakar a little bit more, given that, you know, you couldn't play TJ Warren at the four. There was moments this year when, when obviously down the stretch where Miles Turner's injured and he can't play. And that kind of obviously um, shoehorned Jakar into needing to play minutes at the five and sometimes even starting at the five. But earlier in the season, I thought he probably could have played 
a little bit more in some games, like not as a regular part of the rotation, yeah. but yeah. So, I mean, I have a couple of things off that. Number one, wow. I think it's been three years since I've thought of Kevin Serafin. I think about this um, all the time, Mark. It was uh, one of my main talking points. I just like, I, I, the last time I remember him was watching him play for the wizards and that's been forever. Um, also shout out to the wizards for just randomly having every single Pacers backup center ever. Um, Jan Mahimi still, I miss Jan. Jan was fun. I liked him a lot. Um, but yeah, with Jakar, like, it's just, it's, it's such a good point. Like, I think, uh, he's a guy who's, I, I think we were both really hopeful that he would find a way to extend his game out a little bit this year. And he, he has like some touch out to like 18 feet, but then the, the three is just really not there. And I think if he'd been able to find that, maybe we're, we're having a different conversation about him, but, um, he's just overextended it in a lot of regards when when he is put out for for larger chunks of minutes and um we saw that this year and uh i do think like you're mentioning like the game when jeremy was being asked to guard zion i think you and i both like just collectively had aneurysms on on the timeline like why what in the name of god like i mean credit to jeremy for like actually trying to to defend zion williamson like i'm sure people will look at that and be like well he's he's being paid millions of dollars of course he's going to that's his job like uh, you could pay me millions of dollars and I don't know if I'm going to even try to defend Zion Williamson if he's right in front of me. So, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, I agree. It, it, it was, it was good to see that, um, that I, I guess we can't call him new today. I'll just say Nate Bjorkren, um, that Nate Bjorkren went with, with Goga. Um, but it was just, it, it was very different. And you saw that difference in philosophy, like you're mentioning. Yeah. And the other thing is that, you know, then they ended up shining, signing O'Shea. So once O'Shea was available, it makes more sense to be playing him at the four for the reasons you just said. He can step out and hit threes and just kind of do more things. But um, that also might as well just go right into my one over under, which you're probably going to want to turn the pot off for this. Uh-oh. But just prepare yourself. I had a hard time coming up with one of these, and, and Jakar's contract is up, correct? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah. So – we're just going to assume that Jakar is back in this scenario. And we're going to assume that since, you know, we're going to hope that TJ Warren's fully healthy and that you have O'Shea. So you're going to have potentially two people that can also play at the four in addition to offensively Miles Turner playing at the four. So um, if Jakar is back, how many centers are ahead of him in the rotation? The uh, line is 2.5. <laughs> well, just, uh, I w- see you'd think it's a, it's a very simple take the over right um but also i mean a very simple take the under because we imagine one guy's going to get traded but also i mean just i didn't think gogo was going to get picked i thought that they would pick a four um or a three in that draft or just anybody who wasn't a center um you never know <laughs> this team has a I, i'm mostly just joking but they that you legitimately never know if the best player available available on the board excuse me, is a center at their pick. I, I would prefer that they trade out of it and uh, try and make some sensible moves there. Uh, but I don't, I, I think I would take the, uh, I would take the under um, if that's the scenario, but I did have to play the bit a little bit to open up. I would like to think that if they drafted another center that they wouldn't re-sign Jakar, but um, you never know. <laughs> But yeah, you never know. But 
Um, they also have, I think that, I think that Brima's two-way contract is a two-year contract. I think he will be one of their two-way spots next year. So, I mean, there, it is feasible to think that if they got in a real big pinch, they could also play him at the five, although they really weren't doing that down the stretch when they had like no centers available. So, um, I think that I'm just going to go with my tried and true, which was last year. I remember you made me answer how many more games Miles Turner would play and set the line at 0.5. And I was like, well, I always think that trades are less likely to happen. So I'm going to stick with my idea that trades are less likely to happen so that you're still going to have at that point, you'd still have Miles Sabonis and Goga. And so that there would be at least three. And then that brings to the question of, you know, like I said, if if you're not going to need to swing Jakar at the four, do you need Jakar and a break glass in case of emergency roll anymore? Like, I'm not sure you do, especially if you could call somebody up. Like, I mean, you could theoretically call up Brima once he's in the Mad Ants system and on your uh, coming back and forth. But I'll take the over. That's probably a wise move in all honesty. But you know what? I'm fine with being wrong. It's it's okay. Um Wow, I still can't believe we got a Kevin Serafin shout out. So, are, are you? Do you have anything else you want to hit on before we move to Keelan? No, I'm ready to go to Keelan. Awesome. So, my play for me is uh, on May 10th against the Cleveland Cavaliers with a minute 52 left in the fourth quarter. Karis LeVert runs a high middle pick and roll with Demonis Sabonis. Keelan Martin's on the left wing. Dean Wade pinches off of him to uh, to stunt towards Karis's drive. Karis uh, throws a bullet pass out to Keelan. Dean Wade closes out. Keelan does a really nice pump and go, goes to his left. Um, Colin Sexton actually has one of like the worst sequences of off-ball defense I saw this year. Um, but uh, I I actually love Colin Sexton, so I'm not going to slander him. But uh, I'm, Keelan finishes with a really nice left hand. Uh, everyone was really stunted towards, or shaded towards uh, what Karras and, and Domas were doing. Um, and that – Play just really encapsulated for me what Keelan was able to bring towards the end of the season. Also, that was his best game of the year. Um, I, I I was going back through one of the ways that I get started in doing like research for looking at at the one pods when we do them is I do the uh, trying to tried and true Twitter trick that I can't I would never say that sentence again if I ever try and bring it up. That was a tongue twister. Um, I, I just like type in my at and then like the player's name. So I typed in Keelan Martin. And my first thing that came up was uh, this is the most May basketball thing ever for Keelan Martin and Isaac Acora to be trading buckets down the stretch of a close game. And that was like the case in that game. Keelan Martin was awesome. I think he finished with 22 points, um, nailed a couple threes. He had like six made baskets in, in the final quarter. Um, and was just really big in that game. They, they had a lot of guys out, which is why he played so many minutes. Um and I just felt like in, in watching that game, you saw the encapsulation of what he could do. He had a couple of finishes and going back through and watching uh, those minutes again today. Like, I mean, he had a, a really nice floater in the lane, which is like something he, he had at, at Butler. And of course, at Minnesota, in Minnesota too, um, that didn't always fall for him this year, but it did in that game. He had good craft around the rim. He was able to attack closeouts. He was confidently shooting um, and he played good defense in that game too. So that, that was my, uh, that was my play, but more of like a, you got the full Keelan Martin experience in that game. Yeah. And I mean, I think he talked about in his exit interview that this was kind of like the first time where, especially at the beginning of the year that he just wasn't playing Mm -hmm. like in his career and and how he tried to stay ready. And he talked about how much he 
would sit there and w- watch the games, but also go home and watch the games and, and learn a lot with reads. And there's one play in that game that I might write about later because he made a read off of a screen that I haven't seen anyone else on the team make. And in the game they played against Minnesota, um, it's a play that Chris Finch runs for Carl Anthony Towns, but not in Keelan isn't in that role, but the screener is and the Timberwolves look for that play. And then Keelan did it, which I think speaks to how much when he wasn't playing and he did play some in that Timberwolves game, but not a lot that, uh, I, I believe him when he says that he was going home and reading that because I had not seen Sabonis or Miles or any of the other bigs in that role look to make that. So I give him a lot of credit there. And like you said, I mean, he didn't shoot a lot of threes this year, but he still shot it well, mm-hmm. which was better than what he did. I think I think he shot the ball well in the G League last year, but not so well when he was just playing games for Minnesota. I didn't look that number up, but uh, it's below. Yeah, it's way below yeah, the average. But, like but right for him there. to come into games this year and he shot the ball well in that game, I believe he shot it pretty well against uh, the game in San Antonio when they were shorthanded as well, hit a couple threes. But um, I don't want to go too far into the defense in case you're going to talk about defense in one of your next two, either your number or your over under i actually am not about to talk about the defense oh well can i just go on a little bit of an aside there of course so um i know that navy orkin down the stretch a lot talked about that he was like finding minutes for keelan because he liked his versatile defense and like for me to be honest like sometimes similar to what i said on the Cassius stanley pod like it was easy for me not to even recognize right away that keelan was playing because it happened so rarely so yesterday I went through and watched all of his defensive actions to see like, you know, what was Nate Bjorker and seeing that I might not have been. And, and to be honest, like in the early going, there were times where like they played the nets and, and he, and like he, he would switch when they weren't actually switching. So both people were running at Landry Shamit and that was leaving Alizé alone under the basket. Or um, sometimes he got overwhelmed a little bit by bigger fours or he would, I know this is strange to say, but he would go under against shooters sometimes and not deliberately, <laughs> clearly, clearly not because Nate Bjorkman was telling him to. And then the one game in Minnesota, he, I don't think he came out and played in the second half. And he, strangely enough, because they were short, so short-handed, was guarding Carl Anthony Towns at times and then was like soft switching with Jeremy against Anthony Edwards, which was then putting Jeremy in the position to guard Carl Anthony Towns. So at first I was like, hmm. You know, some of this is a little iffy, but then towards the very back end of the season, like the game against the Lakers, he's guarding Schroeder one-on-one ISO. And not that Schroeder's like some elite isolation score, but he stays in front of him the whole time and makes it a tough shot. And I bring that up because also in the same game, he was guarding Anthony Davis in the post multiple possessions and also guarding LeBron. And that speaks to his versatility to be able to guard against multiple positions, especially just as an on-ball defender. And he did a good job. Like I know that all three of those guys had just been returning to playing basketball Mm -hmm. and weren't really playing full out, but he got Anthony Davis to pass the ball out of the post more than once, held his spot well. and, And I thought, I mean, you're not going to stop LeBron, but I thought I held up decently in that particular game and, and had some nice possessions as good as you can kind of expect even against Kevin Durant late. So I think overall he needs to work on being quicker a little bit because he can be really gritty on ball, but then he ends up getting beat. So I feel like if he could fix his foot speed a little bit, he'd be even more versatile to kind of move around. But I get where Nate Bjorken was coming in from by the end of the year. I thought that his defense was was showing up. Yeah, I actually really like the point you just made about 
his reaction time and his, his feet, it feels like he's not great at guarding with both his hands and his feet at the same time. Like it feels like he's either guarding with his feet and, and moving, but not using his hands or he's using his hands and he, he could get caught reaching at times. Um, so that's something I'd like to see him improve on too. But I, I do like you, like, especially earlier in the year, it was easy to see him like struggle defensively. And I think like we've talked about so much of that could be attributed to um, playing this system and, not having real time to participate in it would make it really tough too. Um, but as he found time down, down the stretch, I, I was pretty like maybe impressed is the wrong way to put it, but I thought he played well. Like his defense was good. It brought you something, you know, it, it, it brought you real defense at the four spot that you could, you could count on him to guard a couple of different positions and he wasn't going to get absolutely murdered on the perimeter every time and I just thought that was that was valuable valuable like having somebody could come off the bench and actually do that um and it it, that that feeds into my number a little bit and my number is almost I almost like identical to uh your number with your car I have 41 and that's the percent of time he spent at the four this year and then that just brings a question for me like I like why didn't we see him more at the beginning of the year um I know that it's so easy to go back and nitpick this, but I just remember in the, in the moment, like when we're talking about how much Domas and, and Brogdon are playing, um, you know, seeing like a seven and a half or eight man rotation going out regularly for the first month and a half, two months of the year. And Keelan Martin like barely came off the bench. Uh, I just kept re- remembering, like thinking like how, how he talked about wanting to have like a very multiple approach and everyone was going to have to be ready to play. And, I kept thinking, okay, well, we just, you know, the team used their last roster spot on this guy, Keelan Martin, who, well, he's not fantastic. He had solid moments in the preseason uh, and and really brought you the idea of somebody who could uh, rotate backline or, or be out on the point of attack uh, and just give you that that multiplicity and, and could hit threes. And, and part of it was his offense was not always there, but also yeah. like, he just didn't really get a lot of opportunities to, to, to establish or find a real rhythm because his minutes were so inconsistent. And it just was a little bit frustrating because then you see over the last month of the season, like it felt real from him. Like I, it didn't just feel like shooting variance to me. Like I thought, I thought that he was actually, he looked comfortable in the offense. He was definitely comfortable on defense. Like I think his, his defense was definitely better than his offense, but I just felt like, okay, well, maybe maybe if he had been getting more steady minutes at the beginning of the year, you're not worrying about having to scramble to get him minutes towards the end of the year, and, and you get more of that consistent impact from him. Yeah, and I think that's a great point because, you know, we talked about it on the last pod with the Jeremy thing, and it's kind of tough to work through the whys on some of the stuff that happened this year, but I think, like, my gut instinct looking back is is that Jeremy came back from injury – and is your best bench score when the rotation is there to be able to come in and, and get a shot and get to different spots. And they wanted to be able to play Jeremy, but they wanted to do it without having to bench Aaron like permanently that like, that's my gut inclination because yeah. in some of those lineups, like you're playing TJ, Aaron, Doug, Jeremy, and then either one of the other two centers or Goga. And I think playing Jeremy at the four allowed them to keep finding regular minutes for Aaron and just the general tilt toward offense. But like you're saying, like at certain points with the way Aaron was struggling with the way some guys were being overtaxed with minutes with Jeremy playing out of position, you could see spots where it's like, wouldn't it have just been easier 
to bump Jeremy up to the two and not go with Aaron. But then, you know, you're balancing development. And if, if you think there's a chance that you weren't going to be able to retain TJ McConnell, you wanted Aaron to get minutes. So there's a lot of give or take, but I did think there was obvious spots where the last two guys we were talking about being Jakar or Keelan would have been a little bit more natural fit for at least matching up with your opponent. Because the thing that there was is it's not like they were constantly like, let's play Jeremy because we don't want to match size for size or like put, you know, a little bit heftier defender on their four. It would be different if you were actively trying to like punish or target their four with Jeremy and be running him off screens or running that guy through picks in some sort of way. But it didn't often seem like they were really doing that. So again, but yeah, I agree with you late in the season because I don't know if you're going to bring this up in the over-under, but I think, and this isn't Keelan's fault, but we should talk about that literally in that Wizards game, they trot out a lineup of Aaron, Edmund, McConnell, Keelan, and Goga. And other than the little bit of like time they got in the prior play-in game, which was just a blowout almost from the start against Charlotte, those five people had never played together before. So you're putting yourself in a position, and I know injuries – forced Bjorkren's hand a little bit but you know the run that the Wizards went on happened when they decided that playing an all bench lineup in a winner go home game was a good thing to do so maybe Keelan would have been a little bit used to playing at the four next Mm -hmm. to Goga and some of those guys if that had happened some earlier in the season but exactly yeah Yeah, and I do think like in in defense of the coaching staff like Keelan did have some rough games in the early going oh yeah totally opportunity like his offense and and knowing what he was supposed to be doing wasn't always perfectly there but you know it's tough it's like it's just it's a balancing act and it just felt like the balance was not quite there um in favor of getting some of those end of bench guys a, a real opportunity but uh, alas, on to the over-under. Um, my number is 808, and do you know what that is? 808? It is no. not in reference to a Kanye West album. but <laughs> No, I don't know. So that is, I, I cheated a little bit. It's technically August 8th, which is oh. the oh, day that his, yeah, his, his deal becomes fully guaranteed um, because he has a non-guaranteed deal for next year currently. Uh, so... I guess, I mean, maybe I'm supposed to do 807.5 or something like that. But uh, do you think that the Pacers will keep Keelan Martin or or should they keep Keelan Martin? Is there a case for keeping Keelan Martin? I think there could be a case if Doug walks yeah. to a different team. Because, I mean, you look at that lineup. If Doug isn't there, then you're going to be playing TJ Edmond. Justin O'Shea or if you retain Jeremy then you could swap out Jeremy and Edmund or I guess if you want to keep doing what you were doing shop out O'Shea and and Justin at the four that's not what I would do but that's an option that if one of those guys ends up getting injured like I don't see Keelan starting out the year next year unless they decide to pivot what their plans are for the season like being a regular part of a nine-man rotation but I wouldn't feel bad if like one of those guys sustains an injury that keeps them out for a while, you know, be it Justin or O'Shea or somebody and and you need to have him in a pinch. I don't think that's a terrible roster spot to have there, but if Doug comes back, they already have, I mean, that's why Keelan couldn't find minutes this year. And not to mention, you're going to have TJ back TJ Warren, which means there's going to be even less spot room at the forward positions than there was this year. So, um, I think it'll depend on other decisions. I know that sounds like a cop-out, but what is your take on it? 
Yeah, I agree. Like, I think if you're going to give uh, that roster spot to um, to somebody that, you know, is is going, I mean, grant, it, pretty much any time you give somebody a vet minimum, it's going to be for an end of bench guy, unless you get really lucky and sign somebody like Justin Holiday, who just flourishes and plays extremely well. Um, but for the most part, it's like, okay, well, Keelan's been in the system, but then again, it's like, okay, well, it's going to be an entirely new system this year, uh, most likely, but I mean, he's been around. He's been part of the locker room. I think you can like reasonably say, okay, well, he'll maybe he'll be a little bit better next year now that he's been around and he knows that he's going to be able to play. But uh, it just really depends. Like it's it's fifty fifty for me. Like you're saying, um, it just depends on on other moves that happen. I agree. That's where I would lean as well. All right. So, uh, are you ready to talk about our final player? I am. I'm ready to talk about future Hall of Famer O'Shea Brissett. <laughs> it's close. <laughs> so um, I had no choice for the pick. I mean, I did have a choice. It was down to two two perfect clips of O'Shea Brissett. And I ultimately sided with, I take us to Utah. I take us to Salt Lake City. And we are playing, let's see, we have TJ McConnell out there, Goga, Jeremy, O'Shea, and Aaron. So this is a defensive possession. Jordan Clarkson gets the ball up top and they're running. I mean, he's coming off and getting the ball off screen, but Derek favors is going to roll. So O'Shea is in the middle of the paint protecting against that potential dish to Derek favors going to the basket because there's no other tagger available. So he's standing in the paint there and Jordan Clarkson whips it to the wing and the wing then passes to our good friend, George Niang in the corner. So, as the ball is in flight, O'Shea has to come clear out to the corner to contest and prevents that shot and then ends up uh, zipping – or he zips back to the front line, runs George off the three-point line, and then ends up swatting the shot in, in spite of the fact that George Niang took a side dribble. Like, that is incredible side-to-side movement by O'Shea Brissett. Like, that is worthy of our attention. And it was down between this pick and the one where he closed out hard against Detroit and came all the way in as a weak side rim protector and blocked um, Plumley. So I think this is his biggest strength as a defender is his ability to move sideline to sideline, his ability to shuffle and cut off drives as a help defender and get back out and close out. So that's what I wanted to highlight about him because there's not a lot of people on the roster who can do this. Uh, I would almost say that I was about to say, I don't think there is anybody on the roster other than O'Shea who can do that. Um, Like it was just kind of wild how well he fit into the, what the defense wanted to do. Um, But also then it was like also vexing because it was like, wow, where has this guy been the entire season? Right. And um, it was, uh, it was just impressive getting to watch him really blossom as a defender with the team. Uh, and, and this is not to sound negative, but one thing I would bring up that we talked about, do you think his defense faded a little bit down the stretch of the season? And I think part of that is like to take in context, like crazy stuff was going on with the team. Like that is, that cannot be like that. I, I take everybody's defense down the stretch of the year with a grain of salt, given that there just wasn't a lot of effort there. And uh, that's not something I would uh, rag on the guys for considering Um but would you – I mean, it felt like after the first probably 10 games of the O'Shea experience, his, his defense did waver a little bit. It did, but like you're saying, it felt like the effort of everyone wavered quite yeah. a bit. But when they were in their base system, his ability to do this, like even in the play-in game, you could still see him 
being like, okay, Russell Westbrook's posting. I can go over there and help and still get back to my guy. And in the lateral movement, his ability to get to the nail and get back, his footwork is good in those situations mm-hmm. as well. What I will say is I think he was just overtaxed. Like, yes, and this definitely. is where it comes from that I don't think – I don't think at this point in time that he's ideally a starting four. Like it, it, his minutes against Kevin Durant were bad. Uh, the ones where he was trying to guard Marvin Bagley, like the entire team defense against Sacramento, obviously at times looked like a protest, but when things started bad, <laughs> Marvin was, Bagley looked like Hakeem Olajuwon. Exactly. And this is, I mean, we'll get into this the more we break this down, but I think he needs to work on getting stronger yep. over the summer because his post defense needs some work because yeah he he was getting moved by Marvin Bagley pretty easily in addition to like you know they were they were expecting him to guard Giannis I don't I don't think that's something that he's going to be able to do Um, I think it's a little bit of both things that like what I said about Keelan I think that O'Shea also needs to work on his foot speed because he can get beat by his own guy or if he's defending on the front like on ball and pick and roll he can get beat and give up quite a bit of space in rear view pursuit so it's like when he's guarding smaller guys, he needs to work on his foot speed, but he also needs to get stronger all at the same time so he can have the versatility that he seems like he would be capable of having. But what he does as a help defender and what he does moving sideline to sideline and his weak side rim protection is tagging. That's a skill that the Pacers don't have. Like it is in very short supply. And I think that's why he was like, in part, such a big revelation when he started playing. Cause it's like, Oh, there, there it is. What's been missing. But, um, yeah, so that that was what I wanted to say for the one play. But I do agree with you that aspects of it waned as the season went. But you also have to give him a little bit of a break because he's playing way bigger minutes. I mean, like the one game I made the joke of the Jimmy Butler picture. I mean, look how many minutes he played against the Thunder. and he Plus, he was playing minutes at the five, too. So mm-hmm. I'm sure that that probably weighed on his energy somewhat going from having not been playing anywhere after the G League bubble to suddenly not only being thrust into the rotation, but as a starter who needs to play big minutes at times. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. But yeah. um, my one number for O'Shea is 68.4. Ooh. Take a guess at this one. 68.4. Um, let me think. Um, 68.4. Is that his shooting percentage at the rim? Yes, that's his that's his percentage in the restricted area, which is just nuts. And what we need to point out about this is if you look at the breakdown, almost all of those shots, with the exception of, I believe, a couple, was all cuts and putbacks. Yep. So and that worked really well for him within the offense. And again, we'll give a shout out back to Bjorker and you said it was almost stunning how he fit in it. It almost wasn't because, I mean, he was from the Raptors 905 system. He had played with the Raptors. The Pacers run so much of that stuff. Like right away, I think the first thing that I noticed about him offensively was when they run the ghost screen for TJ McConnell and TJ McConnell attacks baseline, his instincts as a cutter were among the best on the team in that situation in terms of not 
spoiling the spacing and knowing exactly when to cut a mid penetration from the baseline. So um, he, he fit really well in that respect. And he attacked the glass well for his size and his position. And he finished on those. Like it wasn't obviously a huge sample size. I think his entire shot profile in the restricted area was like 57 attempts, but I'm telling a broader narrative here. So stick with me when he was in the G league bubble with the mad ants, he shot 57% in the restricted area. So he goes to the NBA level and he has almost an 11% increase. And what's wild about that is then you compare his three point percentage. So he takes 3.7 threes per game with the Pacers and shoots 42%. And I was looking back and I added up all the threes that he took with the Mad Ants, which he shot 33% for the Mad Ants in the bubble from three on 6.5 attempts, so higher volume. With the Raptors 905 last year, he shot 26% on four and a half attempts. And with just the Raptors, he shot 20% on very only like 15 total tries. So just from those three teams, not even counting what he did when he was at Syracuse, he was at 28.3% with the Mad Ants, Raptors 905, and Raptors compared to coming in and being a starter with the Pacers and shooting 42%. So, like, I think both of these things kind of go hand in hand. I think a lot of that was shot selection. Like, he did not try to play outside himself. Like, he's getting open looks. Um, and a lot of that also somewhat ties back to Sabonis and some of the stuff that he was getting both as a cutter. And from three, if you look at some of the past percentages, as well as Karras's, uh gravity too late in the season. But the thing that's interesting with all of this is, is he took two total shots from mid-range and basically did nothing off of the dribble. Like He had 37 total drives, shot 21% on the drives, and passed out of the drives 21% of the time. So that's what I'm getting at. Like He just played within himself and, and knew himself really well. And where he could find spots in this particular offense that he was clearly familiar with and Sabonis played a part in that. But my question to you is with this restricted area number that I shared is if next year, like let's assume that this three point like late season surge holds and he's really improved himself as a three point shooter. He did not take a single contested three, like not tightly contested or anything. All of his shots were either open or wide open. So if opponents start noticing like, Hey, that, that guy can shoot. And it's not just a product of like other people's gravity that he's getting some of these shots and, and he needs to drive a closeout. I don't think he continues to shoot 68% from three, given what he's done on drives. So how do you see some of that math shaking out? Well, first of all, have you ever thought that maybe if you didn't bring up these wild stats that, uh, that the opponents wouldn't find them out and, and tailor their <laughs> defensive game plans to that player. Um, I, mean, it's just, I was just like blown away that he never took a contested three and that, like everything that he did in the restricted area was either cuts or putbacks. I would say, didn't he, he like, I just, I remember him watching, he had a couple of like sidestep, like he, like one dribble um, three point attempts, but I agree. Like he did not have a lot of highly contested stuff. And I think all the numbers that we're putting together right now, like just to, to throw out another wild stat, he shot better from three this year than he shot from the field at either of his years at Syracuse. Like, yeah. That's what's so wild. Like, I think his true shooting percentage at Syracuse is, is like barely even 50%. I don't think it's there. Um, so, like, this, that's why I'm so interested to see whether or not this is something sustainable from him. Because in watching, it felt very, like, real. Like, his three looks good. It looks clean. But, like, you're mentioning, like, it's not – to. I don't want to belittle what he's doing, but at the same point, like, it's just – 
it's it's a really small sample size and it's mostly unguarded shots so i i just don't know what to take from it and if you know this is why i want to tamp down a little bit and i try to do this on the pod during the year too not to be like that a, a, a buzzkill or whatever but i just don't know that I would be willing or ready to say that he's a starting level player yet. Like I know he started for 16 games and he looks good and he fit in with the team. But I think if you, like you've mentioned, like if, if teams really get him on their scouting report and they really get to dive into what he is or, or isn't doing on the offensive end, um, I think he's a much easier player to scheme against and, and you need more versatility than than, than that perhaps in the starting lineup. So, and again, that's not even like a slight to him. I still think he's a guy who's like, if he's like the sixth, I mean, not six, if he's like the seventh or eighth man next year, that's pretty good. Like he brings you exactly what you need. This team has missed somebody who can play as uh, a real forward off the bench. Like, I mean, Doug is a forward, but I mean, guys who can guard forwards too. Like, um, but yeah, I agree. Like in terms of, actual three-point percentage I would be surprised if it stays this high next year because I just don't know um that I trust the sample size and also with the everything at the rim I do think like there's stuff there with him uh you know getting lobs and putbacks because he was really good in the cutting it was almost felt like watching TJ Warren light in terms of his ability to just cut off ball and find seams to to attack um but again you don't know what it's going to look like in a different offense next year uh, and I, we just haven't really seen him have to create anything for himself before. And I don't know if, if he's a player that's ready to do that yet. Right. Because a lot of that is, is choreographed. Like it's up to the player to time it in real time, but like, it is like, you know, cut on the 45 when, when TJ penetrates, like the timing yeah. matters and not everybody has that, but that was a set play. And some of the stuff that he's doing with Sabonis cutting out from the corner, whether it be in delay action or other stuff is also a set play. And, and it's dependent on Sabonis being there to pass. Cause he shot 50% overall when Sabonis was setting him up. And I believe 45% from three when Sabonis was setting him up and he'll still get open looks out of driving kick, I'm sure. But you know, when he's leveraged off of the three point line, if he is, I don't feel real good about his in-between game and his ability to put the ball on the floor yet. But, I mean, it's just, like, stunning to see that somebody goes from the bubble. And, I mean, I watched a lot of the Mad Ants games, and I noticed O'Shea. Like, to be honest, like, a lot of times when I watch those games, I think to myself, like, would I know who the players who are on two-way contract or who are draft picks were if I didn't know, if you know what I mean? Like, and I'm watching, you would have thought that O'Shea was the NBA player. Like, that was pretty clear when you watch those games. So there's definitely stuff there. But for him just to go from shooting 33% with the Mad Ants to shooting 42%. That's a really good increase, but some of it, I just want to credit for his shot selection. And I'm sure like watching some of the Mad Ants guards, like I said, I mean, there was at times where Cassius Stanley was bringing the ball up the floor and other stuff. So you're just, you're not going to get the same looks with that as you would if, if it's Karras or Brogdon or whatever Sabonis is doing, but to increase by over 10% as a three point shooter and a restricted area, when you, and in the restricted area when you go from the G league to the NBA just is like a stunning surge. I mean, he talked about it. Um, I heard him multiple times in interviews and stuff say like, I never want to have this feeling again of, of being cut or, or not. And he's clearly a hard worker. 
Um, he said that he worked on his form and foundation and tweaked some things. And I, I'm not like a shot doctor to be able to go back and look and see what he did to fix some of that stuff. But he talked about like when he, when he's open and he's taking shots that are open and playing within himself, he has time to concentrate on doing the things that he worked on with his form, which was an opportunity when he stepped into the role on this type of system with the Pacers. So there's some reason to think that'll continue, but we also don't know what um, the system is going to be, but yeah. So, I mean, all this actually does just go right into what I was going to ask you, which the over-under is I set the line for his three-point percentage at 35%. So would you take the over or the under knowing that he shot, like I said, just to repeat for the listeners, 20% for the Raptors, 26% for the Raptors 905, 30% for his career at Syracuse, and 33% with the Mad Ants? I am going to be optimistic and take the over uh, just because I, in washing the shot, like I do think like the energy transfer looks clean. Again, I'm not a shot doctor either. I've learned a lot more about it recently since doing scouting stuff, but um, like the release looks really good. Um, it doesn't feel like he's overloading anything. I also like to like, it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It felt like it's different than with miles. And this is not, again, that's a dog on miles, but Miles's thing has always been, that he's not will not uh, not comfortable taking three sometimes. Uh, I like if O'Shea is not going to take a three, he just makes a decision right away. Like that's that's where the difference is in watching stuff with Miles because sometimes it was better this year. I think this is Miles's best year in terms of ball movement. But you look at past years and the ball would stick a lot if it got to him and he wasn't sure if you wanted to shoot it uh, or, or or pass. And, and I feel like O'Shea at least moves the ball. If he's not going to pass it, I mean, if he's not going to shoot it, he moves it pretty quickly. Yeah. I know yeah, that I, it doesn't answer your question at all, but, um, yeah, I would take, I would take the over just because I'm being optimistic. As in, you know, it makes perfect sense. Cause that would say that he's not going to take, you know, tougher shots and, and yeah. some of the data with what they count in the tracking with contested and uncontested can be, finicky. it's wonky. Yeah. But, um, I think I'm feeling confident and we'll take the over as well, just because I think that what he said is true. I think that, and he also talked about meeting up with various guys on the team that he wants to maintain chemistry. He wants to keep working hard. He seems like a guy who really wants to stick in the rotation. Um, I agree with you. I think that he's overtaxed at times to think that, you know, he could play it at the four on a, good team right now but i'm open to seeing the ways that he can continue to improve because he's already shown that he's gotten better in in certain ways but um o'shea definitely made the end of the season a lot more fun to watch and oh yeah a great signing for the pacers easily the brightest candidate. spot of the, like, of the season great low buy um give them a lot of credit for that like even if the you know i think that we've talked about before how some of the drafting hasn't gone well but and you know, and O'Shea obviously isn't their draft pick, but it is somebody that identified out of their own G League team and said like, hey, you know, and I know they talked about Brian Levy, who's the head of the Mad Ants up there in Fort Wayne and, and selection and that he identified O'Shea and was like, that's somebody we want to have on the Mad Ants. And then the Pacers obviously saw the success that he had with the team there and the system that they run. And, and that... That also, sorry, sorry just as an aside, like that also speaks to, I know I've mentioned this before, but like, under the prior system and Steve Gansey ran nice sets and stuff, but there were times where I could watch the Mad Ants play and be like, you're not running the same stuff as Nate McMillan. Yeah. And, and that's fine. Like to, cause maybe you have a certain guy on your team that you've had directives like, Hey, we want him to work on this. And it may not be the exact same thing that the Pacers run, but it's giving them opportunities to work on a skill. When you watch the Mad Ants play now, it is the, ex I mean, 
probably won't be now because you don't have Nate Bjorken anymore. But when you watched him this season, it was the exact same plays that the Pacers were running. So it would have been easier for O'Shea to go from that and be able to step in with the Pacers and have things clicking right away, I would think, than what it was under the prior two coaching staffs. Yeah, and this is a random question too, but how – like, is it, at least for me, this is the most that I think I've felt the impact of, of the Mad Ants in the regular season. Like, you look at, uh, I mean, part of it is over the years, how Edmund's been able to build up and get to where he's at now. Um, O'Shea coming out was huge. So, like, I think that's, like, really the next step for the organization, in my opinion, in a lot of in a lot of ways. Like, I, I think you look at, it's again, we, we probably want to be careful throwing a lot of Raptors comparisons out after, after this season. Um, but like building up that kind of talent base and uh, having a consistent uh, G League team that that can can bring you, I mean that you can develop guys and, and bring them to the next level and, and find rotation players through that is really key, especially when you're a smaller market team trying to uh, find ways to be more competitive. Like I, I think that's been huge this year. Right. I mean, I think over the past years, you've been able to see that with Miami as well. Them mm-hmm. them finding guys out of the G League that at times, you know, they don't even maybe use a second round pick, but they do find guys that they sign to contracts similar to O'Shea that they end up turning into rotation players later on. So, yeah, definitely. I think that's been a positive step. I mean, wasn't a lot of G League games this year, but O'Shea and Edmund definitely both feathers in the cap of what the benefit of of playing in the G League can do for you. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, I mean, okay, I guess I would ask one last question off that thing because you mentioned second round picks. How do you feel about like, I know this is such a random question to end off on, but like, how do you feel about like the use of second round picks? Because I think like maybe I get like too gritty and granular with stuff, but I, I mean, I find them to be important. The Pacers have two this year. They're probably not going to get to use them both um, just given the, the how full the roster is currently and, and where the salary cap is at. But um like, I just think you can find real value there and, and try and grow a guy in a G League and, and try and establish something there. And that's why I'm really interested to see how the team handles Cassius because, uh, like, I, I mean, after you put an entire year of development into somebody, it sounds so trivial, but, like, you could get somebody who really could bring something to your team in the second round if you really uh, identify someone who you think could grow and, and be part of the team moving forward. And, and that's why I think, it, you know, especially with this team, uh, having that system built in is so huge. Yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, look at it. Jokic is the MVP, Mark, and he was a second-round pick. Yeah, he's pretty good. Uh, I'm going to expect that to happen good. from here on out. Oh, yeah. Well, obviously, whoever the Pacers draft with the Utah pick is going to be the best player that's ever come out of the NBA draft. Uh, you can count it now. Yeah, that's what I expect. <laughs> Well, Caitlin, uh, we're not done yet. It's we. It is time for the "Would You Rather" question, and I, I hinted at the beginning that you're not going to like this one. Um, but oh yay! On this pod, we like to put people uh, to put their feet to the, the fire a little bit. Are you familiar with that? Uh, that like really random uh, cult is the wrong word, uh, but it's kind of like a cult, like the uh, like the speaking engagement stuff. That's very cult like to me. Uh, have you ever seen this? It's like an episode of Friends when they're on the beach and they they run across the the hot coals or whatever, and supposedly you don't burn your feet doing it. But I don't buy that at all. Um, that's basically this. That's that's this question. You are really towing the line and trying to find out who Caitlin Cooper really is with this question. Oh dear. 
Yeah. Um, I like people to know the absolute least amount about me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is only about like the two things we do know about you. So if you could only choose one, would you rather never watch the Indiana Pacers play again or never eat another outshine popsicle as long as you live? Mark, this is terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was the only thing I could think of today. I was like, that's pretty good. So uh, that, yeah. that is a brutal question, a brutal one, because I have to tell you something. There was about a week ago, like I did not have this need to be eating outshine popsicles all the time until mm-hmm. the last year. I had actually not had one before. I was eating these triple layer ones that were uh, – I don't even remember who made them, but the top layer was banana and the middle was orange and the bottom was strawberry. And they were like theoretically real fruit, but they were icier. And then when quarantine happened, like the two grocery stores around me stopped selling them. Like not only were they sold out because everybody was loading their freezers up with food, but they literally just no longer had a spot for them anymore. So I was devastated because I really like popsicles and I don't like the artificial ones that are like, oh, this is grape or this is orange. Like, no. So my sister was like, oh, one time I had these pineapple ones that were real fruit. They're outshine. You'd probably like them. And I was like, oh, okay, I give it a try. And then it just became like my daily thing. Like every day I'm in the house, I have nothing to do. But the one thing I would look forward to is at like three o'clock, if I was writing something or whatever I was working on with my day job, it's like, it's three o'clock. I'm going to go get a popsicle out of the freezer. And my, my day is going to get better. <laughs> and I don't know how many boxes of these I've ate. Like it, it's literally problematic. I, I think I'm the reason that the grocery store is continuing to stock them because I'm probably making them money. So there was about a week ago to make the long story short that i didn't get to the store i didn't buy any and like every day i was like i don't have a popsicle like i might get the shakes i don't know if i'm gonna (laughs) make it through the day without having the popsicle and then they did they stopped stocking the skinny one and i had to go with the bar and the bar is fine but i mean you wouldn't like it because there's actual chunks of fruit in it. oh god but i like the skinnier regular just popsicle better and they haven't had that one lately so i mean I, i definitely have missed it like I haven't found a replacement thing. Like, oh, I I can go without my popsicle for today because there's something else. Now with the Pacers, I also know during quarantine, like I went back and watched old games, but it wasn't the same as having new film in front of me to continue watching. However, if you were to say to me, Caitlin, which would you rather pick? The late season Pacers and what the product looked like defensively and how you're not going to understand why they're doing things that they're doing for like weeks on end and the effort's not going to be there and there's going to be constant like rumors swirling around of stuff you don't want to write about and don't want to talk about. And it's not going to be that much about basketball. I'm picking the popsicles. Like if this had continued and somebody said, you know, keep watching the Pacers or pick the popsicles, I might've picked the popsicles if I'm being completely honest. And because I would have options of 20 other nine other teams I could watch. Like it would, it would be, completely out of character for me to somehow start watching the games of every game of the other team, but I would pick the popsicles. But now that I know that I'm not going to be seeing all of that stuff anymore, I I'm picking the Pacers. I will give up the outshine popsicles and just as a general aside, like, I, cause I can't even say that I would quit them because people know that I didn't like <laughs> when, <laughs> even when things were at their most dire, I was still pumping out content and staying up late at night and, and watching film and writing things about them. So I will pick the Pacers. Sorry, Outshine. You've been kicked to the curb. And just like that, any potential sponsorship we had 
down the toilet. I mean, um, we did. We had a listener go out and buy the popsicles, Mark. And I really think we should have said we really, yeah, we could have should have sent an ad to Outshine because they might have just sent me like a gratuity box, like, hey, thanks for your referral. Here's a lifetime supply of popsicles, and then I wouldn't even have to worry about whether my grocery store has them or not. Do you listen to the Dunker Spot? Yes, sometimes I, okay, I know that. Well, I was yeah. gonna say Nikias. I'm friends with Nikias, and Nikias just got a uh, a gratuity box from Martinelli's for all of his uh, his pumping up of 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 the Martinelli's uh, apple juice culture on Twitter. So I think we need to start really leaning into this because I just think we talk about it enough. Like I think we're 95% Pacers. 5% outshine, and that's just enough that I think we could get real content. I think what this really reveals about us is how unpopular we are, because <laughs> if he's already getting that not even a year into his uh, launching well, of well, his in tremendous fairness, podcast. In fairness, he's very vocal about it on Twitter. We have not been vocal about getting outshined. Like, he's adding Martinelli's every single day. Like, I think we need to start doing that. Like, also, have you seen Shawshank before? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. Just like how uh, the main character in Shawshank, Andy, writes to uh, writes to the the main state board to get library books and magazines to uh, and, and funds to Shawshank Prison to, to build up the library. That can be us, except we can send DMs to Outshine on Twitter every single day. That is my task for our listeners. Please DM Outshine as often as possible to get them to sponsor our podcast because uh, we would appreciate it. I mean, why stop there? I think we should get the listeners to contact the Pacers and tell them that the logo ad on the jerseys should be Outshine. And the the milkshake picture that used to be under the goal stanchion should be an Outshine popsicle. I, I think we need to think bigger. But I think we also need to put you on the spot here. Have you tried an Outshine Popsicle yet? Well, that that's all, folks. That is a great way to uh, to leave. I have not tried a. Uh, I mean, this yet. this again. This speaks to my unpopularity. I can't even get my co-host to try one of these things. So, how are we ever going to be Outshine influencers if you haven't even had one? I'm going. I'm going to have one. I have not gone to the grocery store in in a couple weeks. Uh, <laughs> So Do you need I, my sage advice? Like, I know that you don't really like strawberry, correct? I I like strawberries. I don't oh, like I thought you strawberry said you didn't chunks. Like strawberry. I just don't like like the chunks in uh in like frozen stuff or uh or, or pie. That's where I struggle with it. I mean, I will let you know that they're not all created equally. Like in mm. general, an outshine popsicle, no matter which one you're having, is going to be better than a regular popsicle. Like, I'm just gonna let you know that up front. But you have to be like, you need to be a real one if you're going to buy the lime ones. Like the lime ones are pretty intense. The lemon like ones, lime. the lemon ones are similar to like frozen lemonade, but just heavier on just straight up lemon. But the tangerine ones, I'm not, I'm not huge on. Like if, if it was just plain orange, I would like it. But the tangerine is a little too sweet. Pineapple perfection and the strawberry is really, really good. The raspberry is kind of like more of a dessert popsicle because it's mm -hmm. pretty sweet. So as you just starting out in your in your venture, in my outshine journey, yeah, in your outshine journey, I would recommend that your gateway popsicle <laughs> be, be the strawberry. This is just opening up to all other kinds of frozen foods. Oh, yes, amazing. I mean I think that your gateway popsicle should be the strawberry one if you like strawberry. But if if you like citrus fruit then the lemon would be a good place to start, especially in the heat of summer. Like that can be very refreshing if you're sitting outside to have a lemon one. I have a confession. So if I said 
that I kind of, well, not just kind of, I do enjoy like if I'm making margaritas or something, even if I'm not, if I just have a lime around, like I'll slice up a lime and I'll like, not saying I'll eat a lime, but I won't not eat a lime. Um, I'm not trying to completely out myself on this podcast. I, Mark Schindler, will happily eat limes. Uh, so you over... would like peel a lime and eat like a section I, of it? I don't think you can just like peel a lime, but like if it's sliced <laughs> up, like I'll bite into it. I don't, it's the same thing with oranges. So like, you would I'd... suck on a lime. Yeah. I didn't know okay. that you could eat oranges for the longest time. I would just what? like bite into it and suck out the juice. Um, I didn't know that you could like eat. So the you're thing. a fruit vampire? I was. Have you ever, have you ever read Vampires in the Lemon, Lemon Grove? I had to read it for a, um, for one of my lit classes and uh, i was like wow that's me i used to just bite into oranges and not know you could eat the fruit but um wow to anybody who is still listening to us um i apologize that that i've gotten this far uh i promise i have uh, my eating habits have improved greatly over my 24 years of being on the planet um caitlin do you have do you have anything else you want to hit on before we get out of here I mean, I fear that there's going to be bingo cards created about us in our podcast where there'll be like a section. God, on, I hope so. There'll, there'll be like in order to hit bingo, there'll be a free space, of course. And then there'll be, did we talk about outshine popsicles? Did they talk about um, shot releases and shot selection? <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure what else would be on this card, but if people listen long enough, I'm afraid that we're becoming repetitive in our topics, but. You know. I do think our, but see, we have such reach, like our bingo cards, like most bingo cards are going to be like, what, like a, a nine by nine or something. We're going to need like oh, yeah. a, a 15 by 15 at least. So yeah, that's, I mean, this is intense. This is intense bingo, but yeah. yeah, for everyone that did listen to this long conversation that just kind of sounds like we're just talking on the phone right now, shout outs to you. <laughs> the real ones. Well, Caitlin, this has been great as always. I'm looking forward to, I think next episode is our last episode of yeah. the one. Yeah, we get to talk about the centers. How excited are you for that? That's going to be our most difficult episode, without a doubt, because I am going to come very prepared, and I have no doubt you are as well. Um, I actually, how do you feel about, let's put out a couple of listener-submitted questions. Like, let's ask if people have questions, Um, because I do think there's a lot we could tackle with that. Uh, This is going to be, we're not going to be like Game of Thrones and just uh, send in mail in the final season we're going to really take this one seriously and drag it out uh get get as many listens as possible really just uh, it will be a three-hour podcast yes. our one will be about Goga. there will be an intermission our two will be about Sabonis. our three will be about miles turner it'll be like the morning today show yeah and then everybody can complain about how we accidentally went three seconds over on domas so that means we like him more than miles and um, you know, the usual, but yes, uh, this is a perfect place to leave off. Caitlin fun as always, uh, to everyone listening. Thank you so much for listening. We've really enjoyed doing this. Um, this is a blast. It's really cool knowing how much you guys, uh, are into this and, and, and follow along with us and and send us questions on Twitter. Like that's been one of the coolest things for me this last year of just covering basketball and getting to interact with all of you. So, so thank you for that. Um, have a good rest of your day and go Pacers.